0: It, it was definitely what changed me, for sure.
1: Ooh, I'm like processing all of this. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. Those places are a carnival mirror. I'm like, wow. <laughs> it is um, though, right? Like, we, it's, it's a tough thing. Hello, friends. How are we doing today? I hope you take a second to check in with yourself, see how you're doing. I am... Feeling lots of feelings. I actually today in about an hour I will be going to my first therapy appointment with a new provider. I haven't been in a while, probably since October, because we just couldn't make ends meet. It's just kind of how things go, and that's just the reality, you know. Um, I have been on my cerebral app, and there's like a care counselor. On there that you can speak to but I think it was kind of time for me to move on from that and see what I could do. I actually found someone who was on a sliding scale which if you don't know what that means it just means that based on your income they charge a different amount. So yeah I'm right here with you if you're one of those people that hasn't gotten counseling because of all of the above. I'm here to say that I'm trying. I also wanted to give a shout out to our anonymous sponsor. You know who you are. Um, we will have an episode on March 23rd because of them. I'm super grateful. You guys have no idea. This podcast means the absolute world to me. I'm tearing up. Me and myself for a second. But it does. It means the world that people would come here to. Share their hardest moments. Like when we're talking about grief, we're talking about the hardest moments of our lives. And like up to this point, more than 20 people have just sat with me and had a conversation. And I've gotten so many messages that because those people shared their hard moments, it made it a little bit, a little bit better for somebody else. And the fact that you guys would want this show to keep going. It means the absolute world. I also want to give a shout out to our editor, Emmanuel because he puts so much work into every single episode. And he also messaged me saying that he wanted to sponsor two episodes and, and give us his time for free for two episodes so that the show could keep going, so that we could keep having these conversations, so that we could sit with each other in our hardest times. It just makes me so emotional that we are just crying about it with you guys. I hope that you all enjoy this week's episode with Marcy. She is a force to be reckoned with. She actually wrote a book, which we'll mention in this episode, and she talks about how the grief changed her life, and it's never gotten better. And I think that's true for a lot of us. So without further ado, I I hope that you guys will sit with me. I have Marcy here, who we met on uh, Matchmaker FM, which a few of us have met on. But she started off by saying a bunch of great things that I just missed. So we're just going to jump right into it today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So here's my thing with grief. I think um, as somebody who who has lost, loss has been a very big theme in my life, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I am somebody who has been very gutted by it. My whole life changed with my first big loss changed completely. And I think that there isn't enough honesty around grief. I think that we live in a world, in a society that puts so much emphasis on appearances, the appearance of being strong and what that means. And I think that we're always supposed to put an optimistic spin on everything because I think, especially grief, I think grief more than anything else makes other people uncomfortable. And so to not make other people uncomfortable we have to say, but I'm okay, or this is what I've learned, or this is how I'm stronger. And I think that that's very damaging to people who have actually been through loss or or who are going through loss. I think that, that people depend on cliches, and mm-hmm. I absolutely detest cliches. I think that when somebody loses someone, I think when you're their friend or your family, you want to say the right thing. I think a lot of people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so they fall back on cliches, like they're in a better place. They're with you in spirit. At least they're out of pain, things like that. And me personally, I find those very hurtful. I don't find comfort in that at all. And I think think that the, the truth is people are so concerned about saying something to make the other person feel better. And the truth is there is nothing you can say To make somebody who has just lost somebody close to them feel better. But what you can do is let them know they're not alone. And there is an enormous amount of power in that. So my advice to anyone who knows anyone who is going through grief is instead of going to the cliches that everyone's heard and are pretty empty, is to be very honest and say, I can't imagine what you're going through. I, I don't know what to say. But I will take my cues from you. If you want to talk about them, I will listen. If you don't want to talk about it and you just want to be quiet, that's great too. I am here for you because you cannot make them feel better, but you can make them feel less alone.
1: And that's so important too, because like from all of the conversations that I've had, it's like a tiptoeing and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do. And, and that's so true. There really is nothing you can do. Like, right. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. This tremendous loss has happened.
0: That's um, it. You can't fix it. You can't. And and I know when people will ask me about my family and I lost, I mean, the major losses, I mean, I lost, I lost my brother. I lost my mother. I lost my father. Um, I I almost died years ago. I lost three babies. Um, mm-hmm. So I always feel bad when somebody says to me, you know, do you have any siblings or do you What? tell me about your family? I always think like, Oh, okay, now I'm going to make them feel bad. (laughs) You know, when, when I feel bad for them, um, I remember when my brother died and um, he was 21 and, and walking through a mall with my mom. And I remember people, she'd see friends or acquaintances and they'd come over to her and they'd say, how are you feeling? And she would break down. Of course. I mean, she was devastated and I would see them cringing. Like I would see how uncomfortable they were with her answer because they just wanted her to say, I'm okay. So that they could, and I'm not saying this <laughs> to criticize them, but I knew at 17 years old that they, they just wanted to feel like, okay, I did the right thing. I approached her. I asked her how she's doing. Yeah. And, and then they would feel okay with themselves. They felt it was wrong to ignore her, but they, they weren't prepared for her emotion. And I remember yeah. saying to my mom, cause it broke my heart every time that happened. Yeah. And I remember saying to her, you know what, just say you're fine. And then talk about it with me, talk about it with my sister, you know, talk about it with the people who know you and love you. Other people, they just, just tell them what they want to hear, you know, because it is, it does, it, especially when it's a loss, like a child, if people don't want to be in it too long because they can't imagine it for themselves. Right. Yeah. It's, it's something, it's a place of pain that they don't want to go to. So they want to acknowledge it, but in a way that is the least damaging for themselves. And I get it. I totally get it. But in those situations, I'd say just walk away. Just walk away.
1: Hmm. It's so insane because, like, what would it look like if you let yourself go to those places with someone? You know what? We're not...
0: equipped for it, which is why I think when you truly, truly are, when, care about somebody, when you're very close to somebody, it's still, oh my God, it's a horrible, painful place to go. But that's why, that's why you sit with that person, you know, just sit with the person. But if it's somebody who you don't know very well, like in the situation of walking through a mall and you see somebody, if you can't yeah. handle it, don't try really yeah. like, don't think, oh, I'm a bad person. If I don't approach her, no it, better that you don't. If if you can't do it in a way where you take yourself out of the situation and you are purely doing it for the other person, don't do it. Don't think, everybody thinks they have to solve everything. You don't. (laughs) You know, you don't. And you know what? Even even if you are close to the person, if it's too hard for you, it's okay. Again, I always go to honesty. Go to an honest, because the person grieving, I think, will appreciate that. Say, "I, I don't know what to do. This is, I can't imagine this is, I can't even wrap my head around it because you're also validating that person's loss. I think my issue with cliches is it, it really diminishes the the person's loss. And it's like, do you not, you know, what, you know, when people say everything happens for a reason, well, unless you can tell me what that reason is and it's a really good one, don't say that. Don't tell me well, at least they're out of pain because they should not have been in pain in the first place. Don't tell me that they're with me in spirit because I don't want them in spirit. I want them here in the flesh. So you're, you're diminishing my loss. But if you say to me, oh my God, I can't even imagine. And I have no idea what to say. Then it means you get it, you know, because you're, you're not trying to tell me that you know how I feel. You're saying, I can't even imagine it. And that there's so much power and support in that. I just I think that people are so afraid of being honest. And honest is what is what we need. We don't need perfection. We just need real honest emotion.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. So tell us a little bit about that first loss. My Since first loss. Your yeah, life, it, yeah. It
0: completely did. Um So I was 17 years old. At this point, my parents were divorced and my father had been out of the picture since I was 10. And it was my mother, um, my older sister, my older brother and I, and my sister and I are close now, but at the time we weren't close for very, very many years. My brother was in between us age wise, and we were both very close with him. And he was five years older than me. So when my father left and I was 10, he was 15 And he kind of took over as, I guess, man of the house in a way. I mean, I was also extremely close to my mom. So I was very lucky in my childhood in that when my father left, I had my mother and my brother who made me feel loved and safe every minute that I had them. And I'm very lucky for that. But my brother, I always say my mother was my safe place to come home to. And my brother was the invisible armor I wore out in the world to protect me. Mm. So as long as I had them, I was okay. And my brother was, he was fun. And he was, he was, I, I also say that he knew when to stand in front of me to protect me. and when to stand behind me, encouraging me to protect myself. Mm. So he was the typical big brother. If somebody was bothering me, you know, do you want me to talk yeah. to them? Do you want me to, that kind of thing? But he was also, he was just very warm and very loving. and He's just a perfect big brother, you know. And so he got sick. For me, the timing is so weird because to me, it seems like it was very fast. I don't know really how fast it was, but he would, he'd been born with a, a hereditary liver disease, but we didn't know. So it wasn't something that we were prepared for. He was very athletic, and it wasn't until um, later when he, he just he had symptoms. They thought he had mono. And then they thought he had hepatitis and it took a while to figure out he had something called Wilson's disease. And by the time they figured it out, uh, it had progressed too far. Um, but my memories, I don't remember him being in the hospital until the end, you know, it wasn't like he was this sick kid. Uh, I wasn't at all prepared. In fact, I was in the middle of writing my final English exam in high school when wow. the, yeah, the vice principal walked into the room and came over to my desk and collected my things and said, come with me. And we walked down the hallway. And he, I remember he didn't, he didn't look at me. And I thought, that's so weird. He's avoiding me. And my brother had been in the hospital. He had had a liver transplant. Um, and I missed quite a bit of school to be at the hospital. But he, uh, he, was, he was Billy. Like, of course, he was going to be OK. He was 21 years old. He was, of course, he was going to be OK. Like, there wasn't a question in my mind. And it wasn't until I got to the principal's office and I saw my mom's friend standing there and I knew what, okay, why is my mother's friend here? Why did they take me out? I'm going to get like a big exam, my final high school exam. And it, it just, I knew.
1: Hmm.
0: And I think I, I, I often say that it was that it was the moment, the moment before I heard that the moment before I heard that he died was the last Moment that I felt safe for years and decades, and I still don't feel completely safe in the world. But that that changed me completely, and it changed me in a few ways. It changed me in the sense um, that, for one thing, at 17 years old, you're supposed to feel like you know invincible. Most teenagers feel invincible, right? Yeah. And I learned very quickly that if this could happen to him, then anything bad can happen. At this point, I didn't even know. I think I had one friend that had lost a grandparent. Like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know nobody had lost a sibling. Um, so it was just such a shock that nobody's safe, you know. So suddenly I felt very scared of the world. I also felt that the world needed him more than me. I felt like he was such a good person that um i felt i felt that it should have been me it felt, i felt like it should have been me instead of him mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you I, like i remember the day that he died um, it's the phone ringing and i answered it and it was this little kid and he was asking for my brother and it, my brother had been a counselor at a camp the summer before oh gosh and his campers adored him and it was one of his campers like a little, i think he's maybe even 10 calling to speak with him and I thought, oh my God, when am I going to, and I asked to speak with his mother and I had to tell his mother that he had died. And I thought, oh, I still think about (laughs) over 30 years later, I think what a, what I don't envy that mom for having the conversation that she'd had to have with her son when they got the phone, when they said Billy died. Um, but he was so great that, so uh, I felt like, okay, if I'm here and he's not, how am I going to earn that privilege?
1: Mm.
0: I felt like, I felt like I couldn't just be average. If I, if I was going to be here, I had to earn my spot. And that meant being spectacular. But I didn't feel spectacular. I mean, and I will tell you, up until this point, I was a kid with a ton of self-esteem. I was, I was a good athlete. I was a performer. I danced a ton in different types of, you know, for school, for camp, different things. Um, I was very outspoken. My mother always encouraged me. She told me at a very young age that I had a voice and an opinion and it was worth sharing and to never feel intimidated by anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. So I was, a, I was a pretty feisty, self-confident kid, yeah. but suddenly I felt like I'm not good enough and I'll never be good enough. And I thought, if I can't be smart enough or interesting enough or funny enough, maybe I should be pretty. And I thought at that age, what did pretty mean? Still, unfortunately, it meant I'm going to try to be as skinny as possible. And so Billy's death gave birth to an eating disorder that would control my life for the next few decades. The other thing was, sorry, with with the other part of the how the eating disorder came into it was it was a subconscious distraction. because especially at that age, a loss like that was so huge. It was so massive that I I could not wrap my head around it. So it was easier for me to focus on my empty stomach than his empty bedroom. It was easier for me to understand the pain of starving myself than the pain of not having my brother anymore.
1: Yeah, was it like a a sense of control, like something that-
0: Right. Right, because exactly, because for the first time, really, to such a degree, I learned I have no control. I had, I had no control over anything, but I did have control. And as crazy as this sounds, when, some, when Billy was in the hospital and somebody would bring food, because everyone brings food. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't matter what it is, if it's, a, if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, people always bring food. And my, my way of doing something, rebelling, was to not eat it. And I also felt like if there's when there's nothing in the world you can control, what's the one thing you can control? It's your body. You control what you put in it, what you don't put in it, how much you move it or don't move. So at that age, um, I just that that's what I that's what I turned to. And so I went from this kid who thought she could take on the world to feeling like I didn't deserve to be part of it. And that, that followed me for years and years and years.
1: What did you do next? You're 17. Yeah. It, well,
0: <laughs> it was a rough road. It's been a rough road. I mean,
1: yeah.
0: I had just gone into a, a really prestigious theater school after high school that he had actually my brother was a really good actor at his school. In fact, when he died, his theater school built a theater library and named it after him. And he had given me um, a monologue that he had uh, from a play that he had done in school for my audition. And the day he died, (laughs) along with that phone call from his camper, I got a call saying I had made it into the program and yeah, it was so bizarre. Um, But I went to school and I was only oh, like the three-year program. I stayed about a year and a half because I just uh, again I went from being super confident to not confident enough. And if you're going to be in any kind of theater program, you have to, you know, you 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 have to believe in yourself. You have to be, yeah. want to be seen. You have to there there's you you absolutely need a thick skin. And I just my world was a mess, and I I dropped out, and I really kind of hid from the world for a while and then ended up deciding, okay, I need to figure my stuff out. And I moved to another province on my own from Montreal to Toronto. And, but you know what? I never, I never dealt with the grief. I never dealt with my eating disorder the way I needed to. And it, it, it did, it followed me. And, um, it, unfortunately, when you have such low self-esteem it's like trying to build a house on quicksand as much as I tried to move on with my life, there wasn't any foundation there. And I'll tell you again, my mother was amazing. You know, when I would say to her, when I would say to her, cause I would, I would, I was very open with her cause she, we were very supportive for each other. And I would say to her, well, I, I wish it was me because, because I had an older sister, I have an older sister. I felt like at least if it had been me, she'd still have a son and a daughter. Mm. And she'd say, "But I wouldn't have my Marcy. Yeah. And how could I? How could I live without my Marcy? So she, she was great. She did everything she could um, to to be there for me. So it, it was just that's that's the thing, is that grief can tear such a part of you that it's it's tough. And because my grief came out through my eating disorder, this was this other element that was really an anchor around my neck. And it 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 made decisions that I made moving forward not the best. It made me um, kind of jump into situations that I, I shouldn't have. And it also kept me out of situations that I, I deserve to be in and, and didn't have the confidence to pursue. And there were times when I thought that I was in a better place, um, but, but it was still challenging. And I, I'll tell you though, uh, one thing that I started doing in the '90s <laughs> my brother died in '87, and it was in the '90s when I actually moved across country, and um, I started doing this thing. I found that there are look, I, grief comes out at, at, at different times, but around certain anniversaries, mm-hmm. people tend to focus, so on, on his birthday and on the day that he died. Uh, I just I, Those were always tough days, and I decided at one point, I think I was about 25, that instead of mourning his death, I wanted to celebrate his life because he was such a fun person, yeah. but it didn't feel right to be mournful. And so what I started doing was I would make those days days of random acts of kindness, and so I would do things around my community, like go into a coffee shop and prepay for 10 strangers coffee and then sit there and watch them get it, but tell the people, (laughs) the baristas don't say it's me because I didn't want anyone to thank me, but just to watch that. And then um, I remember bringing cookies to a fire station, um, bringing a plant to a senior's home. I would do things that made people happy because that's what he did. And that I found has been such a great thing. And then when I had kids, so later on, because they never got to meet him, I would bring them with me uh, when I did that. And that was a great way of keeping him in my life and introducing yeah. him to my children in a way that was positive. And then a few years later, unfortunately, devastating again, I lost my mom yeah. when I was 28 and pregnant with my first, which oh, is I'm <laughs> so, sorry. So I, was, it was, I never imagined being a mother without my mother for, I didn't get a second of that. And that was also unexpected. It was not. I was not expecting it. And um, I knew that I was going to do the same tradition for her because she loved it. (laughs) She loved it when I did it for my brother. So I do it for them for on her birthday as well, and on the day that I lost her. So it's it's a way of. I mean, to be honest, I'll do it sometimes when I just feel really down. It's a it's a really good it's a really good pick me up because it's funny. Some people will get a free coffee and just kind of, whatever, no big deal. And other people, it's like the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. And it really, it's just, it just, it makes you feel good. So it's, I do, I feel like I'm really honoring them by doing something positive And it, it makes me feel closer to them. So, and that's, But it, but again, I'm somebody who, who thinks it's important to talk about the people that you've lost. Not everybody can, and that's fine. But mm-hmm. for me, especially with my children, it was so important. I don't have a side of the family. You know, my sister and I were estranged for years. And it wasn't until more recently that we became close again, thank goodness. But my kids didn't, I didn't grow up with cousins and aunts. And so my kids only knew me from my side of my family. Mm-hmm. And it was important for me that they know my mother and my brother because they were so, they were so important to me. And, and they do. I mean, I've, I've written some short stories for fun about my brother. And um, if you were to talk to my kids who are in their 20s now, they could tell you stories, you would think that they met them. And it was never scary. It was never solemn, because they weren't down people, you know, they were love personified. And so uh, for me, it's important that, that they will bring them up sometimes and bring up stories. And to me, it keeps it keeps part of them alive, you know, and it's so important to me that 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 they're not forgotten. And, and I love when I'll get messages still on Facebook 30 years after my brother died from people saying, I went to camp with him. And I just heard, Mm. my brother was a huge Prince fan. People say, Oh, I heard a Prince song today. And I thought of Billy or, you know, I I love that. And, and there are too many people who think also they're afraid of bringing up somebody that passed away, you know, as if it's going to make, and I'm like, are you kidding? Like I, (laughs) I love it. I love when people bring him because it's telling me that you remember, And that's, that's, I love that, that my brother died in the eighties and people still have stories about him and still remember, you know, I, I love that my friends remember how my mom was the one who, when they had issues, they couldn't bring to their own parents. They came to my mom, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: that there was, that my mom taught me from a very young age, her thing was nobody is inferior nor superior to anybody else on the basis of anything, whether it's race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, money, it's all in how you treat other people. She was just a really good, good person. And I love that people remember that. It's it's super important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like because you had that switch in your brain with your brother, like you made that decision that you were going to celebrate his life, that it gave mm-hmm. birth to so many beautiful things after that.
0: I think, that, um, I think that I think that I recognize. I've often said, I've often said that I was very lucky to have them at all. But I sometimes would wonder, huh, if I w- if they weren't so great, <laughs> then maybe I wouldn't miss them as much. Um, but I also know that my life has been challenging. I've had a very challenging life, and if I didn't have them at the very beginning. I wouldn't have made it through the rest of the stuff that I went through. I, I, I believe that, um, that I, I needed whatever was that they planted in me, that sparked, that they, that they uh, ignited in me when I had them. I believe that that's what's gotten me through everything else. And, and it is their memories that, and all my memories with them that are such highlights of my life. And it's such joys of my life that, that, as painful as it is to not have them. I'm so grateful that I did. And I do think that the best parts of me come from them. And I do just, just what we were just saying with, with the random acts of kindness. I mean, the Mm -hmm. fact that through me, they're still making people happy. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I, I am grateful that I was able and that I am able to, to look at pictures and feel the joy to, to have those memories Um, and that, and that, uh, and that as tough as they can get sometimes, because that's the thing too, you know, there, it could be 50 years since you lost somebody and then you Mm -hmm. can be hit unexpectedly. Something just reminds you and it could hurt and that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. and then you feel it and then you move on. But I'm so, I'm so lucky to, to have had them. And again, I, I feel like, as much as I, I I I say I hate when people say they're still with you, and I don't know, there's I don't know what that, what happens and that they're with me, but I know that the best parts of them are in me. As weird as that sounds, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I'm I'm grateful that I can recognize that because if you can't if you can't recognize the good, then you just live in the darkness. And I I can't I can't I couldn't do that for my children, you know. I, I, I just, I can't do that for myself.
1: Yeah. It's not survivable.
0: It's not. Look, there are days, I'll be very honest. I mean, there are days when it's, it still feels unsurvivable, but it is. Mm-hmm. It is because here's the other thing I learned too. Um, there, there are times when, okay. So people will say again, the whole time heals a wounds thing. And I don't, I don't think that's true. It, it, it eases. No, some, <laughs> yeah. some can, but, but it's, no, it's not. In fact, I find sometimes time, you know, a year after you lose someone is usually harder than the week after because you're still yep. in shock <laughs> yep. for the That's first so week. True. After you've had the time to go, OK, what now? Oh, these are all the things that I'm going to go through and they won't be there. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's tougher and all the big events in your life and things like that. So for me, I see it more as like losing a limb. You know, like when you lose an arm, when it first happens, you think, Oh, well, I can't, what am I going to do? I I can't live like this, but you have no choice because I always, I wished that there could be a pause button on life where when you're really going through tough stuff, you can just put, press pause and just deal with it. But you don't have, we don't have that luxury. So whether I want it to or not, the sun goes down, the sun goes up. It's another day. Mm-hmm. And when you lose, I don't know, I've never lost a limb. I can't, but in, in my perception, I, I feel like it's like, you you feel like you can't. And then you realize, okay, you can still do things. You learn how to do all the things you did before, but it's never quite the same
1: mm-hmm. and it's
0: never quite as easy. And you always know that. And that's that's how I feel about a big loss. It's nothing is ever the same. Nothing mm-hmm. is easier. But you do find a way to go on. But uh, the the healing part, I guess, is that you don't have this huge gaping wound. Although, like I just said, there are times when it does feel like that. Mm -hmm. And, and that's when you kind of go, okay, this is one of those days or one of those moments when I'm really feeling it and you let yourself feel it. And then the next day will be better. Mm -hmm. But I think again, when we're talking about people in your life that were so significant, it would be weird (laughs) to be able to go, yeah, okay, well that happened, but, but I'm okay. You know, I, 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 that's just unrealistic that again, in our society, people want that. You want to hear about uh, oh, this person went through so much trauma and but look how strong they are, you know, but they're pro- the real strong ones are probably people who let themselves feel things because mm-hmm. another thing I've said before is that, is that if you don't let yourself feel your feelings, like I did with my food, right? With my eating disorder, because I, I couldn't handle the loss, I was pushing, pushing the, the grief down, um, by, with some people have alcohol, some people it's whatever this for me was my, was the food, but I wasn't, it wasn't getting rid of my grief. It was just pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. And eventually it was going to destroy me if I didn't deal with it. And that's, that's the truth.
1: Was there a moment for you where you kind of related those things together, right because when you go through something like that you have like it's you're not consciously thinking like I'm not gonna eat because of my grief
0: mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of when of when that happened I, I, it did um, but I don't I don't know I think I mean it wasn't you know what I was gonna say it wasn't at first but I'll, I'll tell you unfortunately, I had a situation where, um, the good thing is that I recognize, I did recognize it pretty quickly in that I noticed that I was restricting my food. I noticed that I was worrying about every calorie. I was, I, I was weighing myself a lot and I recognized it. And I actually, I actually, um, and i I, I, share this a lot, but it's, um, I had gone, I'd gone away to camp. So my brother died the end of May. And I was teaching dance at a summer camp that summer and I didn't know if I should go. He had worked there the summer before and we were supposed to be there together and I wasn't sure if I should go. And, and people that he worked with were really encouraging and supportive. And um, I, I went and I ended up having a really good summer and I was very active. I, I was, I've always been active. I've never had an, I've never had an issue with my weight at all. And I was teaching dance all summer and I, and I started to take the pressure off myself with food and with my weight and all of that. And I was, like I said, I was always at a healthy weight. And I came back that summer and I was just about to start my theater school. And I went to my family doctor who in retrospect was very problematic, but he knew he'd been my family doctor for years. So he knew my brother and I actually said to him, this is, again, maybe three months after Billy died, I was there for physical, and I said, um, when I get on the scale, please don't tell me how much I weigh, because, and I was very honest with him, and I told him that I had been obsessing about my weight, and I was afraid if I heard a number, that it would set me off, and again, this wasn't being irresponsible health-wise, because I was a very healthy, very fit, thin kid, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I'm I'm when I look back, I'm amazed that I had that (laughs) the wherewithal to even acknowledge it and to say it right to my doctor. Unfortunately, he dismissed what I was telling him. And he actually he told me again the scale and he told me that medically speaking, I was not overweight, but society was very thin. And if I wanted to fit into society. I needed to lose 10 pounds. (sighs) And then he told me that if he were me, he wouldn't be caught dead in a bathing suit. And he kept pointing at my stomach saying, what is that? Look at that. What is that? And then he had me write down everything I ate. And then at the end of the week, I would have to go in and show it to him. And then he would berate me if I ate something that he didn't approve of. Um, and that, so that, I, I, guess I was teetering on, you know, had he been a decent human being and, and not negligent, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have gone the way I did with my eating disorder, but.
1: That's like the but, opposite of negligent. It,
0: and it, it was, it was a, it, over the edge. he totally pushed me over and I didn't, I didn't know at the t- I mean, he was a medical, pro- it took me, it took me some therapy Um, and, and, and just getting older to realize that this was a person who had some issues because I had friends that saw him that were heavy, who he had no issue with. It was me. There was something, I think he was trying to mold me into his ideal aesthetic. And I ended up losing the 10 pounds and then another 10 and then another 10. And remember, I didn't have any weight that I needed to lose at the beginning. So going to see him after I lost 30 pounds and I remember him saying, okay, wow, you've lost a lot of weight. And he, and I went on the scale and he said, you can stop now. And I remember thinking (laughs) like F you, (laughs) you know, uh, that's not just watch. Well, look what you started. And it was, it was me rebelling in the worst way because I'm the one that got Mm -hmm. screwed because it was just damaging to me. And, And I ended up actually moving after that. So he couldn't follow my progress or whatever, or demise after that. But, but that, that really set me off. And so I, so I, again, I think I acknowledged the connection pretty early, but it became, it got to the point where it had, it just took over. So even understanding it wasn't enough to help me get through it until much later.
1: What happened later? Like
0: what? That I got recovery from yeah. that. Oh, it was a very long process. I had tried different things at different times and either it wasn't the right person that I was seeing or could have been the right person, but I was just not ready. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I said, I tried a few things, thought there were times when I thought it was behind me, um, when I got married, I thought it was behind me, um, but it wasn't, it came back. And then when I had my kids, I, I knew that I wanted to be able to enjoy my pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. I sort of got this reprieve where I, they were, I, I treated my body well when I was pregnant. I, I didn't overexercise. I didn't starve myself. Um, and I was lucky with that. But, but the minute I had them, I lost the weight in, 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 in an unhealthy way. And um, it, this is this is the thing with eating disorders, too, is that a lot of people don't most people don't understand how insidious they are. Most people don't understand it's not a vanity thing. It's it, it, it's so complicated to the point where back in 2000, um, I had gotten very ill, not related to my eating at all. It was a fluke thing related to an antibiotic I had been given for a sinus infection. Mm-hmm. I was pregnant at the time and um, I ended up in the hospital for two months with kidney failure and respiratory failure. And I was in ICU and ventilator for two and a half weeks and I was given a 25% chance of surviving. Mm. Once I survived and learned how to walk again and talk again and all of that, I remember thinking, I will never worry about how much I weigh again. I will not like my body, you know, has been through so much. I remember thinking when I was in the hospital, even if I die, nobody's going to care how flat my stomach was. You know, Mm -hmm. how thin my thighs were. Like, what? And and I was so upset with myself for giving that a thought. But I will tell you this, that didn't last long Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because because that's the way eating disorders are. You know, I I went right back once I was healthy again, physically, to worrying about all that again. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until, I'm trying to even remember, maybe 2007. Mm -hmm. And my kids were young. And at this point, I mean, I I had gone from, I did, I did it all from anorexia nervosa to compulsive overeating to compulsive, I was bodybuilding and um, just one extreme to the other. And at this point I was compulsively overeating and I, I, I felt I was exhausted. I felt I couldn't get through it. I was eating to the point where I took myself to a crisis clinic at the hospital and they told me, I did. the doctor didn't believe that I was eating so much because he said, you'd be fatter. If you were eating that much, you'd be fatter, not acknowledging the fact that I had been bodybuilding before then in an unhealthy way where I had lost an enormous amount of weight. So even though I gained 40 pounds in two months, it didn't look it. Um, And I thought I can't, I had given up on myself. I had, I thought I, I can't do this anymore. What I couldn't do was give up on my kids. And I knew that they deserved a mom who was healthy I know that they deserved a mom who could listen to them when they were talking and not be consumed with thoughts of what I had eaten, what I was eating or what I was going to eat. Um, Having lost my mother, I I didn't want them to go through that. Uh, And so for them, I looked for a program and found an amazing program through a hospital. And it was an outpatient program. And I was, it was the right program at the right time. I was in my 30s, and I went in, and I I just, I thought, I don't, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was determined, I was determined to just do whatever they told me, and that was another life-changing experience that, um was amazing and and it did it, ta- it taught me how not to be afraid of food and i'll tell you though life continued to be challenging for me and there were times when i did i did relapse at one point and i knew that i was using food i knew i always say we had a um what do you call it when you have a relationship that codependent had a codependent mm-hmm. relationship with my eating disorder where it was there for me it seemed like it was there for me um when life got too hard i would fall back on that it Still to this day, I know if I start to focus on food, I'm like, oh, wait, what's going on in my life, you know? Mm, and that's what it yeah. is. So I did I did relapse years ago. And then um, I found it was just time. It was, you know, you, you can only fall so many times and get hurt so many times and you realize, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> don't yeah. like that. Um, and so now I can say for the last few years, I've had the strongest recovery I've ever had. And recovery doesn't mean for me, that I look a certain way. You know, there are times when I'll eat more and be exercising less and I'll gain some weight. And then other times when I'm, it's the opposite and I lose some weight. But I, I will never again criticize my body for how it looks. I, my body has been through so much either through things that life threw at it or that I did to it, that the fact that it works well, I am so grateful <laughs> that if there are times when my stomach's bigger and my thighs are bigger, what I, I that's okay. That is totally okay. You know, yeah. Yeah, and, I won't, and I life is short too. I mean, and I have, I have way more years behind me than ahead of me. And, and I know that life is short. I've learned that the hard way. And so I will not get to the end of my life and think, I wish I'd eaten more cookies. You know, I mean, yeah. those cookies now, <laughs> yeah. because again, at the end of my life, I don't want the best thing that people say about me is, Oh, she had a good body, you know? Oh, she had nice abs. Oh, her arms are defined. I'd rather them remember me dancing and being happy and being just enjoying the things that make me happy. And food is one of them. And and being comfortable in my body is one of them. And I won't... I missed vacations and events because I just... I missed friends' weddings because I didn't think I looked good enough to go. I mean, that's... I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again.
1: Um, Would you say that your self-esteem has gotten better over the
0: years? 100% and that's because I don't put the focus on how I look Um, Mm. and I'm comfortable with how I look it's not that I'm I'm saying I'm happy despite how I look I think um, but I think when you can it took me a long time to like who I was as a person Mm. I think first it was going through Billy's death and feeling like I'll never measure up so I'm not good enough to then some of, the, some of the situations I got into because of those feelings, those created shame and guilt and things that I carried with me for the second part of my life. So uh, I didn't like who I was. I thought I'd made some terrible mistakes. I thought I did things that I, I just regretted. And so that was tough. And it was only, honestly, I'd say in the last few years, I mean, I wrote a book recently that was a memoir. and it, I was about to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. So in doing that, when you release your, the dirtiest secrets of your life um, that have been holding you back and you realize, you know, nothing bad happened. Like I told my truth and nothing, in fact, is the opposite. People are supportive and loving and empathetic. There's so much freedom in that that I feel this is the me that I like the most. And it has nothing to do with how I look. And, and that's where the power comes from. You know, you can say anything you want about me. This is the first time in a long time since I was a kid when I could look at myself in the mirror and think she's okay. You know, mm. I like her. And there, that there's a lot of power in that because it's, it's not until you can do that, that your life really can be as much as it can be. Because I feel like I held myself back from so many things because I was so worried about judgment from other people. Mm-hmm. And You know, we're supposed to, according to every quote on social media, not worry about what other people think, but that's very hard. And for me, I said I I would try to live by that for years, but it really wasn't until I bared my soul to the world by releasing this book and found, oh, it's super vulnerable and it's scary. But I also knew I couldn't do it until I was okay with myself because I didn't know how people were going to react. I didn't know. I thought people would hate me. I thought that people would judge me. I'm sure some do, but I thought it would be way worse. And I had to be prepared for that. So if I wasn't good with me, then whatever the outcome would have been, it could have been disastrous. So I, I knew I couldn't do it until I was okay with me. Because if everything else around you falls apart, if you're good with you,
1: then you're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to me, actually, that it was your children that – led you to recovery and now you can do things for yourself. Like, now you can say that you don't want the thing that people say about you when you die is to be about your body or how you look. Like, now you can say that for yourself.
0: For sure. Because, you know, I I think in my dedication to them in my book, I gave them life but they saved mine. Because when you feel... I mean, look, I felt at that, that point before recovery, I had nothing left. You know, I had lost the people that I loved. My, my mother was gone. My, my um, brother was gone. I had I had two miscarriages, and then I had lost a baby when I had gotten sick. I had a stillborn, so I had, I had people. I felt like I had more people on the other side waiting for me than I had in life. So part of me was kind of ready to go. I was exhausted. I was so tired. I felt like my entire life had been fighting for something, through something, over something. It was just, it was exhausting. But I had these two little people (laughs) who I adored and who I wanted. I I thought if I could be half the mother that my mother was, you know, then that would be great. And I just, I, it was so important for me that they were happy um, and that they were okay, that I had to, for them, get myself as, as good as I could, because again, I gave up on me, but I didn't give up on that.
1: That's so powerful. I'm like processing that as you're saying. Because <laughs> it. <laughs> it, it is, you know, like have, being someone with mental illness, it's almost like when you hit rock bottom, doing it for yourself. Isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Like you, need, you need those people.
0: It's so true. And it's not a, it's not to put guilt on anyone, you know, but, it, but somebody said to me more recently, and I thought, holy Christ, I hadn't even thought of this. But she was telling me she, she had been through different kinds of abuse. And, and at some point, point, um, and she was a mother and, and she, had, you know, suicide had crossed her mind. And then somebody said to her, but then that becomes part of their story. You know, I thought if, if, if I wasn't here anymore, then, then for the rest of my children's lives, that would be their story about their mother, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to, and I thought, oh my God, I'm glad I know. <sighs> the thought of that, like
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, that, that's what they would have to carry with them yeah. would be awful. And, and again, I mean, <laughs> despite of everything that, in spite of everything I was going through, I was always really concerned that they were okay, you know? Yeah. Um. And so... And so I, I think, yeah, like what you said, uh, the problem with when we have mental health issues or when we're so down, it's that we're expecting that the voices in our head that are telling us we're not good enough, they're the ones that are going to save us. That's, that's, that's n- not realistic, right? Yeah. My, those, those voices, we can't depend on those voices. It's, it's like somebody, again, with just sort of looking themselves in the mirror. We don't see ourselves the way we really are. I always said it's a, almost like carnival mirrors. You know, when you, mm-hmm. when you look at a car and they make you look really tall or really wider, we don't still, so when someone goes, Oh, come on, you're pretty. Well, the, you're seeing me through your eyes, not my eyes, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with mental health. Like the voices that are telling me, you know, that that I don't deserve to be here. I, I can't rely on those voices to tell me, no, no, get up and have a great day. Like that's just not going to happen. So I think sometimes we do have to give in to the people that love us and do yeah. it for them or try just, you know what? It's just try, give it a shot, you know, go another day, you know, get some help, talk to somebody. But, but I think it is having somebody else there, um, that, that gives you a bit of a reason. I think it's, uh, it's absolutely, it, it was definitely what changed me for sure.
1: Ooh, I'm like processing all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're right. Those voices are a carnival mirror. I'm like... it Um, is so
0: right like we it's it's a tough thing um it's almost like when you when you've got uh, when you're when your brain you know when your mind isn't healthy um and look most of ours aren't in different in different ways mm -hmm. so but but let's say with my eating disorder or my self-esteem issues and it's like living with somebody who's abusive 24 hours a day you know, and, and if you're living with somebody who's constantly berating you and telling you how awful you are, it's hard to think otherwise. And when that person is you, I mean, you can't you can't go for a walk from you. You can't leave you. It's 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 just you. Um, and so that's that's why it's really sometimes we really have to think, OK, maybe I'm not thinking maybe I'm not seeing things the way that they really are. You know, and that's when we really do again have to kind of say, "Okay, I don't really believe what they're telling me, but maybe, maybe <laughs> what I'm doing isn't working. What I'm what I'm doing is not making me feel better. So maybe I should listen to someone else for a little bit. Again, just, just give it a give it a shot. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it it wouldn't be worse.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I want to say thank you because <laughs> I'm le- I've learned so much, and I every conversation that I have, I feel like it brings me closer to myself, which Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. Just being someone with a mental illness, like getting closer to yourself is unusual, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially with, I don't know. I feel like these conversations bring me life and I, uh, I hope that it does the same for our audience and where can people find your book?
0: So it? my book, which, <laughs> which is a title will throw people for sure, <laughs> but, <laughs> but my book is called uh, The Good Stripper, A Soccer Mom's Memoir of Lies, Loss, and Lap Dances. Mm-hmm. So again, talking about how life takes you on paths that you just don't expect sometimes. Yeah. But it's, um, it can be found on Amazon, um, and it's also an Audible oh, it's, nice. uh, that, I, that I read. So it's uh, it's me telling my story, and that's on Audible, uh, iTunes, and Amazon. What
1: a gift! I'm excited. Mm. To-
0: it's know. a doozy. Let me tell you, I don't <laughs> hold back. I don't hold back. It's it's yeah. I had to have some conversations with my children because they knew nothing about mm. a lot of my past. Yeah, and. Uh, wow. They were fantastic, but, but it's, yeah, I, there were, let's just say I shocked a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people. So it's, um, yeah, it's a doozy.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you again so much, everyone. Go find her book and buy it and listen to it. Um, I hope that you have a wonderful day. I'm over here like still crying (laughs) because I'm recording all of these all at once and I have to get ready for my appointment soon so I can't avoid this any longer. Also, Emmanuel is the most patient man on the planet (laughs) because I forget to record these every single week because I have ADHD and everything is a jumble and he's just super patient and just waits for me to get them done. So, thank you. But before we get into the Sadie spotlight, I wanted to share again about Buy Me a Coffee, about Patreon, and about hitting subscriber follow on both Apple and Spotify. I know that it's stuff that you hear all the time, and influencers, and all the things. And you might have a bunch of opinions, and you might think this is a cash grab, and you might think a bunch of different things. But honestly, we just want to keep making the show. We want to keep doing it in a sustainable way. We don't want to keep straining ourselves if we don't need to. We have a community to support us. I'm about to start working multiple jobs. Emmanuel works multiple jobs. He works freelance, doing a a lot of different things. And this is one of them. And and it's really important to us. So if you are listening to this, if you love our show, if you're someone who listens every week, please share it. Tell your friends, ask them to subscribe. If you're able to give a dollar, five dollars, Go ahead and jump on, buy me a coffee, buy us a coffee, which really just means we have our coffee and we will be making this show. (laughs) If you are someone who has the means and wants to contribute more, jump on our Patreon. There's a bunch of little goodies over there. Um, You get discounts to our merch. You also get access to our merch, which I don't have everywhere. And so you can only have access to our merch if you are a patron. Um, And then if you are a patron, you'll get a different percentage off depending on um, what tier you're at. We also have free goodies for our top tier, like getting a mug, some stickers, doing a shout out on our show, things like that to help make the show much more sustainable. And sustainability means that we can do this for a long, long time. I also wanted to mention that we have our first episode of Happy Hour up and if you donate to either Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon, you'll get access to our Happy Hour episodes. Amber and I she's my best friend and we just kind of talk and chat about how we are growing up, how we are healing our new child, what things we're into currently, how we are moving past some trauma in our lives, all the things and, and we Love having those conversations, and we want to bring you along. So yeah, I wanted to say that before we get into our savvy spotlight. Actually, I think what I want to recommend is that you find a way to spend meaningful time with your people. And this can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And if you're in the midst of your grief, it can be really isolating. You don't want to talk about things, or you do want to talk about things, and you don't know how it's going to be received. But I I want to say that give it a chance. Invite your closest friends over, have some wine, talk about the things that are hard. I want to share two things in regards to that. If you don't really have anyone, you don't know where to start. The dinner party is a recommendation that I'll share. And they actually create grief groups. It's kind of like meetup. It's a similar concept to where people have grief groups and they have a dinner party. And you share a meal with some people who are going through the same things as you. Um, And then you might not have known them before, but it's a chance to create some meaningful connections. The second thing is the book, The Art of Gathering. It's (laughs) Priya Parker. She talks about in her book how there was a group of women who would gather. One of them was just feeling like she didn't have anyone around, that she didn't feel meaningful connections with anyone around her. She was constantly with her kids. Everything was really hard and she just wanted a place where women could get together and talk about everything that was hard. So she created a group. She sent out an email blast to her closest friends. And they created a rule that anytime that they would get together, no matter like if they were having dinner, if they were going on a walk, whatever they were doing, they would get together. They weren't allowed to talk about their kids. And if they talked about their kids, they had to do a shot. And that just gave them the chance to... Be together in a meaningful way. So if you wanted to, if you felt compelled to, if you felt a little isolated, I say, gather a group of your closest friends. Be together. And if you want to set a rule for it, say, I don't want you to say any griefy things (laughs) or if we're going to talk about our grief, I want you to share some of yours or I don't want you to give me any advice. If you give advice, you need to do a shot (laughs) or whatever it is. You do a handstand, 10 pushups, but... I think it's really important. I'm actually looking forward to this week. We're having a Bob Ross night, <laughs> which is so super silly, but I feel like I need some silliness. I spend a lot of time being serious. I spend a lot of time talking about the things that are hard. And at the same time, my husband and I are tired of each other. <laughs> we're just kind of getting to the point where we I've been struggling a lot and I've been working through changing some medications and all the things so it's just kind of been annoying. And he's had a lot of grace and he's kind of getting to the point where he's tired of having grace, if you know what I mean? So we wanted to have people over. We wanted to get rid of um, some canvases that I had. We have been decluttering, so we decided, you know what, we're gonna lay some canvases out. We're gonna lay some paint out. We're gonna invite people over for baked CD. Um, everyone's gonna bring their own drinks and we're going to paint together and laugh, and be silly, because Bob Ross was silly, and, or I guess his show was silly, things were coming out about him, We're unaffiliated. <laughs> I'm not, like, recommending him, or whatever, but, <laughs> yeah, so we're just excited to gather and be silly, and so that's my recommendation to you this week, as our Saturday Spotlight, is to gather, to have some time with your people, to get a chance to breathe, to relax, to give yourself... A reprieve from all the pain, or to give yourself a place to put it all. I hope that you're having a wonderful day, wherever you are. I'm about to start crying again because I'm thinking about how much I love you and how much I love this space that we get to share together. I hope that you all feel seen, and if you don't, I hope that you find a place to feel seen. Um, I'm gonna be linking Marcy's book in our description. Our episode description, there's also a couple other things in there, the link to the Buy Me Coffee, to Patreon, um, a link to $25 of your first month of Cerebral that is affiliate, so I do get a little bit off of my monthly subscription. You don't have to use it, you can use someone else's or just go directly to the Cerebral website, but that's there for you. And then I'll also be linking The Dinner Party and Priya Parker's book. So, I love you. Take care of yourself. Take a deep breath. Take care, y'all.